17 years. Our kids were about to all go to a new school. We enjoyed our church. I liked what I did for work. We were even considering buying a new house. On the other hand, I felt stressed in our marriage. I loved Leslie deeply, but I don't know that my actions always conveyed that to her in a way that she felt cherished and secure. I felt that I didn't make the time for the kids that I wanted to. I felt confused and stressed over changes that were happening at work. And I felt spiritually dry, like I was drifting away from God. I remember it was the May or June time frame, and I woke up one morning thinking, I think that's the third day in the row that I fell asleep while praying. And I looked over at my nightstand, and my Bible had a coating of dust on it. And I sat up in my bed without getting out of bed, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I prayed out loud. I said, God, get a hold of me. God, awaken me, shake, shake me. So I realize that there's more to this world than just stuff, but I look to you. And I look back on that now, not realizing that a month or two down the road, at the end of July, I would be shaken in a way that I would never expect it and be rocked to the core. But that's how God works. Leslie and I sat together in the same hospital bed, clinging to each other's hands. As I heard my diagnosis explained to me from doctors that kept getting worse with each doctor that entered the room. You have a tumor that's likely cancerous. It's spread to your liver, the lymph nodes surrounding your liver, and to your back, and your lungs, and to your neck. You have inoperable, uncurable, stage four colon cancer. As I remained in the hospital for the next days, I cried with Leslie. I cried with my parents and my sister on FaceTime. I cried with Pastor Kevin. And I clung to my Bible and prayer like I never had before in my life. I remember nurses kept coming in and taking the remote control and handing it to me, saying, here, you can watch what you want. The big TV was on the, on the wall in front of me. I thought nothing seemed less appealing to me than TV right now or being distracted. I wanted something sturdy. I was in shock. Leslie and I decided not to tell our kids anything until I was home and we could do that together. And that remains the single hardest thing I've probably ever done in my life up until now. As we shared the news with them that their dad had cancer, they exchanged looks with one another, not sure what to say or how to act. And the message we kept repeating over and over again is that God is in control, that he is good, that he is faithful and that we'll trust in him. I started chemo the day after our oldest son, Gavin, started his first day of high school, and our youngest, Wyatt, started second grade.
there's two doses or two different types of chemo that people with colon cancer get. And because I was told that I was otherwise healthy and young, I would be starting with both at the same time. I'll spare you all the details of chemo. But I've gone through 31 consecutive courses of chemotherapy with 32 scheduled for Tuesday of next week. This week, sorry. One of the most frustrating things that I hear and have heard over my time meeting with doctors is that you're otherwise healthy. You're otherwise healthy, so we're going to give you the strongest dose of chemo we can. We're otherwise, you're otherwise healthy, so you're going to meet with surgeons. You're otherwise healthy, so I think you're tolerating chemo quite well. You're otherwise healthy, otherwise healthy, otherwise healthy. Telling me I'm otherwise healthy is like telling someone who's falling off a cliff that otherwise they've had a pretty good a day up until now. It's meaningless. I have cancer from my neck to my pelvis, and yet you guys keep saying that I'm otherwise healthy. Enduring chemo has had and continues to have many dark times. The mounting physical toil, the loss of weight and muscle that makes me not want to change my shirt in front of my wife, feeling that I wouldn't go anywhere with Leslie, it appears that we're starring cast members in Beauty and the Beast, although the Beast is malnourished and not very intimidating at all. The hurt I feel when I have to say no to a game of catch with my kids because Dad doesn't feel very well today, and the way my heart breaks when my kids don't ask to play catch because they can see that dad's not able to. What's more difficult is when I think about the future. If God calls me home early, I want nothing, nothing but the best for Leslie and the kids. But at the same time, I want to see my kids graduate from high school or middle school, even elementary. I want to see what God does in their life. I want to be there for when they're sad. I want to see them fall in love. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding. I want to dance with Leslie at all of our children's weddings. desire to take my grandchildren to practice, to watch a game, to listen to a recital. I want to celebrate 20 years of marriage with Leslie, and then 25, and then 50. And most of all, I want to hold my wife's wrinkled hand as we grow old together. Sorry, I knew that I would cry, so I came well prepared with Kleenex, and I still didn't think I had enough, so I got a box behind me, so I'm, I'm good to go on that front. 
you guys can mute me just for this part. This would be much appreciated, I think, for everyone. All right, thank you. I know that if God calls me home early, my days of sadness, tears that wet my pillow every night, the hurt and the pain that I feel will go away. I'm confident in that. Yet my heart shatters thinking of how I will not be there to love and provide and protect my family. And then I hear God whispering to me, it's not your job, that's mine. So 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I keep going back to that verse in there for this light and momentary affliction. Nothing about what we're going through seems light or momentary. But yet, as we talk to the kids before we have a scan and after we have a scan, we tell them that our hope doesn't lie in the test results, our hope doesn't lie in the percentages. And that compared to eternity in heaven for those that believe in Jesus, this is light and it is momentary. There's a lot of people here in this room that have meant a tremendous amount to our family. We've been encouraged, encouraged in ways that we cannot express. This is not meant to be a thank you, to touch on everything that everyone's been doing, from bringing us meals, to giving us gifts, to bringing groceries, to helping with yard work, to dog sitting, which if you knew our dog is way bigger than it sounds, to praying for us, praying with us. We have been blessed. And so many of you play a role in that, and we are grateful for you in our lives. And we see that, how God is using those around us to help us in a time of need when we are not the type of people that like to talk about ourselves or ask for help. Now that part of the sermon was pretty depressing. That's not a, like a good, wow, I feel encouraged now. Let's go on with the rest of our week. In reality, it's not meant to. It's meant to share what we're going through. And yet in the midst of all that pain and all that suffering, we see not only the way God has blessed us through all of you, but God has been teaching and reminding us of things that I want to share with all of you 
and hope that this is encouraging or impactful in some way. So I've got seven, seven items that I want to go through. Sorry, just working out a clicker. Doesn't seem to be working great. Or at all. The first one is that Jesus, not things, are my all-satisfying treasure. So whether you get cancer at age 42 or you die peacefully at age 92, you quickly come to the realization that stuff is of little meaning. We talk to our kids a lot about this. It's Matthew six nineteen through 20. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So much of our society, and I would say that as Christians, we're no, we're no different in, in North America. We're consumed with stuff. And the latest model of car, having the bigger house, having our kids go to the right school, the right college, wanting a certain job or position, and valuing all that, chasing that, spending our lives running after that. I look at those things now and I think in a lot of ways that I see more clearly the purpose of life is not the collection of things. It's not necessarily quality time with people. I want it to be glorifying to God so I don't want people to leave here and say, boy, I can never get a car. We're considering moving, all these things. You can take this to the far extreme either, but I often think now through the lens of, will this help me become closer to Jesus? Can I use this in a way that would glorify Jesus? And look through it not as the, I'm going to give some of my things to God, and I'm going to keep the rest for myself. But what do I need? And then I'll give the rest to God. And advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's far more valuable to me than a collection of treasures that will be ultimately destroyed. Second thing that I'm learning is I'm not in control of my life nearly as much as I thought, and neither are you. We want to control the outcomes of our life a lot with what we eat, where we live, where we go, where we don't go, what we do, what our family eats. And planning and trying to make good choices are not inherently bad. But having your hope rest in those is inherently dangerous. The Bible is quite clear John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you, have, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As much as we want to control things, we're not in control. We can't control everything. 
I go as an example. I go and get vitamin treatment so I can tolerate my chemotherapy better. And it shares an office with another clinic. And I go to a private room called the Botox room. And I think the irony there is, is incredible. That here I'm trying to do something to help on the chemotherapy. And the next patient that comes in the room is worried about wrinkles on their face. Right? We try to hold back time. We try to look older when we're younger. We try to look younger when we're older. We try to do things at the end of our life to make appearances look the way we want them to look. But ultimately that fades. This is not a call for you to try to gain more control. It's a call for you to trust in Jesus and that he is enough. Number three, God wants me to come to him in prayer with my requests and burdens. I remember talking to Pastor Kevin. I was in the hospital shortly after the hospital, and we are talking about my prognosis and things we read on Google, which is not the most encouraging thing when you're diagnosed with the cancer that I had. And I remember thinking, is there a point in praying? Is this God just sending a message that I'm I'm calling you home and your time is short. And Kevin said to me, God is the God of the margins and the marginalized. And that was so impactful to me. I don't know if he stole it because it seemed really wise. I still give him a hard time for that. And he doesn't claim remembering saying it. No matter what's happened to you in your life, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how stacked the odds are against you, God is a God over all of that. God wants us to come to him in prayer. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the power at work within us think he's able to do more than I ask or think and I automatically go to God you can do more you can heal this you can heal me from cancer and I fully believe he can but if he doesn't that doesn't change who he is because he may be working in ways that I can't imagine and I can't see Romans 8:28 and we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I may be healed, I may not. But that doesn't change who God is and that he is working for my good. That he is working for his glory. And so I trust in that. Before I go on to the next one, there's a quote from an author, so this is take it or leave it, but it, it makes a point here. It's by an author named Tim Keller, and he said, God gives us what we would ask for if we know everything that he knows. That's fine if you read that quote to me two years ago. That is really impactful for me now. And I don't dismiss that. It just rests heavy on me that 
if I know, if I saw everything that God was doing, maybe I would ask for what I'm going through right now, that he would use that in some way. And that's not to minimize the suffering that we're going through. There was a card that someone wrote to me or words that someone spoke. I don't remember if it was, they'd written a lot of cards and said a lot of encouraging things to us, but they were saying that life is like a tapestry, and I didn't really know what tapestry meant at the time, uh, but I think it's like a needlepoint or stitching that's sewn together to make a picture, and if you look at the back of that, it just looks like a whole bunch of threads that are just a mess, different colors that look like they're knots. And it sometimes seems like that's, that's our world, that's our life, that's what we look at, is just, it looks like it doesn't make sense. I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know why we're going through this. I don't know why cancer would take my dad when I'm nine years old. But at the same time, you flip around that picture and one day, we'll see that picture. We'll see that God is weaving in these different things in our lives and the lives of others to make this beautiful picture that we can't see. Number four, I may never understand why I have cancer or the purpose of it, but there is a purpose. As I look back on my life over the last 42 Leslie gives me the head nod like you got it right this time. 42 years. There's things that I see that I think only God could have orchestrated that. I don't have time to go into all of those, but I don't believe that God is up in heaven just willy-nilly saying, you get cancer and you get Alzheimer's. You have depression. You're going to struggle in your marriage, in your finances, you're going to have miscarriages. We live in a world that's fallen because of sin. There's nothing about my cancer or any struggles that you will endure or have endured or are enduring that are so perplexing to God that he couldn't have stopped it. Which means that he permitted it. And he's using it for my good and his glory. Romans eleven thirty four to 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what might God be doing in the midst of my cancer? There's 10,000 things that he might be doing through me having cancer in my heart, in Leslie's heart, but even in, in, un in unlikely places. And I just want to share with you things that I've seen just in our children over the last 15 months that don't seem possible and it isn't a reflection of what Leslie or I have done or said as parents. Those that live really close to us know that we are not the best parents in the world. Uh, you, you see that, and you probably hear that <laughs> through open windows. But God may be working here. So Gavin, at a high school orientation, when all these kids don't know each other, 
we're walking around with parents, they're seeing classrooms, and there's probably, I remember my high school orientation, thinking, who's going to be my class? Who do I know? And there he is walking beside his dad with just tears streaming from his eyes because I'm thinking, I don't know that I will see Gavin finish the year, let alone see him graduate, and I can't hold back the tears. Instead of him recoiling and distancing himself from me, his hand is on my back almost the entire time we're at the school saying repeatedly, it's okay, Dad, it's okay. Two weeks into the school year, he sends me a text. He said he's listening to a song. I overlooked the, the fact that he was in class at the time, but he was listening to a song all the same. He said, there's a song that you should listen to that describes what we're going through. Not what you're going through, but what we're going through. And the lyrics were, I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I'm thinking, that's coming from a 14-year-old who's in high school, who's taking the time to text his dad at home about a song that he's listening to that explains what we're going through and where our hope rests. Cecily, when I asked her with tears in my eyes, and everything will have tears in my eyes when I go through this, our kids are accustomed to that. I said, why are we so sad if heaven is so good? And her response is, heaven is way better than our life here. This life is all we know and all we can see. And Henry, as we were walking to Wyatt's baseball game this summer after a night of, or after a day of chemo, he said, Dad, I've been thinking, no one dies early. After you've had chemo and you have cancer, I say, okay, hey, buddy, you have my attention. What do you mean? He said, God knows when we're all going to die. So no one dies early. It's like Satan tries to put things in our way, but God will use those for our good. And Wyatt, Wyatt talks with me more than anyone, adult or child, about what heaven is like, what he thinks heaven is like. He's got some crazy theories if you ever want to talk to him. Ask me what I think heaven is like. Well, kids his age are more focused on football cards or YouTube videos. He's thinking of heaven. So could God be working in the midst of cancer? You bet he is. Even in the midst of cancer, so this is number five, even in the midst of cancer, God is still in control of all things. And you may ask, how can you say that? Not only with what you're going through, but look at the world around you. There's a global pandemic. There's people being kidnapped, children being kidnapped from schools. There's food shortages. There's sickness. There's death. There's disease. There's pain. I will admit to all of that. That was not supposed to be there. 
but come back to God as a long-term investor in your happiness, knowing that nothing on this earth will ultimately satisfy you but Jesus. Yet we live in a world where sin exists, but God didn't design the world this way. Sin entered the world, which Jesus defeated on the cross. And now God is waiting. Now God is waiting patiently and lovingly for people to trust in him until Jesus returns. It's not that God turns a blind eye to our suffering. It's not that God is holding things back, that God is looking and punishing people with sickness and disease. God is going to use those things to call people, and he's waiting for his word to be heard to all nations and tribes and tongues until the day that Jesus comes back. Number six, Jesus feels close when I feel alone. This is the thing that is most maybe surprising to me about cancer is how alone I feel. I have four kids. I have a wife and we all live under one roof. I am very rarely alone, but yet I feel so alone and so isolated. Even in the midst of text messages, of cards, of people stopping by, of saying hello and, and kind words, of my family checking in on me, of Leslie making juice until her hands are stained red with, with fruit and vegetables. I feel alone. This summer, we were in Iowa. And I was looking at an oak tree. I was standing in the shade of that tree and I was looking at the sun. And I was staring at it, just marveling at the beauty of the light that was coming through those branches. And I realized that you can only stare at the sun or you're only drawn to stare at the sun when you're in the shadow. You can't stare out in full light. You often don't take the time to do that. You can't do it. And I thought, well, how similar is that to life? That we're in the valleys or we're in the shadows of life, that that's when we look to the sun, not the sun in the sky, but the sun that's seated at the right hand of God because nothing else will satisfy. And we look at things differently. We marvel at the beauty of Jesus. And so when I feel alone, I'm not alone. Jesus feels close. Second Corinthians 12 and 19, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There are Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. My grace is sufficient for you. What Jesus provides as a gift is enough. It doesn't matter if I'm surrounded by people, but if I'm on a mountaintop high or in the valley low, God's gift is enough. Lastly, the seventh point. 
I am not a citizen of this world. Many of you know that I like, I like traveling. So I saw this article where it says, Airbnb is seeking 12 people to live anywhere for free for one year. And I don't care if I have cancer or not. When I read that, I'm excited by that. And I think, oh man, I would, I would love to do that, right? It's a little bit of a publicity stunt by Airbnb, but they want people to evaluate different destinations and, and the places they have to stay in these destinations and they're sending 12 people. And I started thinking about this. What if I was one of the 12 people selected? And you each got to take a person with you and they want, before they send you off on this world trip, they want everyone to meet in Chicago for a week of orientation. They put you up in a hotel. I realize the irony of Airbnb putting you up in a hotel, but just go with me for the sake of this illustration. You're in this hotel, and you're gathered with all the people, and you're excited to go on a trip. And you're talking there at one night, and someone complains that there's not a lot of light in the hotel room, and they're just going to buy a lamp. So you think, that's kind of weird. People usually don't buy things for the hotel room that they're staying at. So this person goes out and buys a lamp and they're talking at dinner the next night that they bought a lamp and they also bought curtains because the light just made the curtains look different. And, and soon that kind of became contagious amongst the 12 people that you were going to go on this trip with around the world. They started making nightly visits to Home Depot and they were buying things for the hotel room. They were buying bedding. They were buying rugs, lamps. And you thought this was really weird and you thought maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should be fixing up my hotel room, but we're about to go on a trip around the world. Like, this is going to be far better. But yet we're focused on, on this hotel room. And you finally lose it the, the time you see someone carrying in paint cans because they don't like the color. And, and you go up to people and you start talking to them. And people say, like, ah, you know what? I'm going to just stay here for a little while longer. Not so concerned about going on the trip. And I think it's kind of similar to what I've been learning through this, that I'm not a citizen of this world. This is like a hotel stay. And we're all going to check out at some point. So spending so much time and effort on making sure that our hotel room looks a certain way it's like spending time and effort collecting stuff that we're just going to leave one day. 200 or 250 years, no one's going to remember us. I remember my great-grandfather. My kids don't remember him. They never met him. I don't know the name of my great-great-grandfather. I'm sure I could look back at this, but Life here is short. It's like a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. I'm not a citizen of this world, and I don't want my life to reflect that. Jim Elliott was a missionary that ended up dying trying to share the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to villagers who had never heard that before her had contact from the outside 
and he was killed by the villagers that he was trying to save, but before he went, he wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I want that to be the anthem of my life. The world may look at me as foolish for the things that I'm doing, but I'm doing it for a reason. I want to gain what I can't lose. I don't want to spend time on the things that will ultimately go away and won't satisfy. At Center Church, we do something called gospel application at the end of every service. And I would love to give you all, here's five things that I think you should start doing. The seize the day moment, the bucket list, the, all these kind of things, right? We're inclined to listen to something and, and then say, all right, here's what you do. Go off and do this stuff. But Christianity is different than every, any other religion in the world in that it's not about doing. It's about accepting what's already done. And so we try to apply that and look at what we've talked about in the service through the lens of what's already been done for you. So the two points of application, or gospel application, are number one, believe the gospel. Without putting our faith in Jesus and recognizing that he is all satisfying, we are otherwise healthy. Right? It doesn't matter what we do, what we get, how much we're liked, how much fun we have, how much money we made or spent, the trips that we've gone on. Without Jesus, it doesn't matter. And the second point, trust that Jesus is enough. My mom has continually said to me throughout cancer, and I often think about my kids through cancer, but I also think about my parents, and it's a really hard thing for them to see your child go through what we've been going through, and my mom continues to say, tell me what we can do for you. Just tell, me, tell me what would be helpful. What, what can I do? I say, mom, there's, there's nothing you can do, right? Just pray for me. I know who I am, but tell me what I can do. And she cries often when she's saying this because she just wants to do something. And we all want to do something, right? We think we need to earn our way. We need to help. We need to, we need to ask or, or do things in order to make sure that we're, we're seen as, as responsible, we're seen as helpful. At a certain point, we have to recognize we can't do anything. And the same is true with Jesus. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter all the things that you try to do. You can't earn your salvation. God gave Jesus as a substitute, not as a model that we follow. He's a substitute. He took our place already so that we don't have to earn anything. We just have to trust that Jesus is enough. And in trusting that Jesus is enough, that will change our life.
There is so much that we've gone through, that we're going through, and we don't know how much longer I have. We don't know how much longer we have together as a family. But I do know that we are using means to try to hold back cancer, to try to fight. But my hope does not rest in those means. My hope rests in God and the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so, if you want to talk about that, if you want to pray about that after the service, throughout the next week or two, I've got some downtime after I get chemo where I don't do a whole lot, but talking is fine. I'd love to talk with you and share more about that. But I want you to know that regardless if I am healed miraculously or if I'm called home early, that I firmly believe that Jesus is enough and that my hope in him is secure.